Welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. History writers and tellers are always looking for treasure, that treasure being an undiscovered piece of history that might have had earth-shaking consequences for many of us. We have one of those rare finds here with us today in the shape of a new book coming January 8th that tells the story of the plot to kill General George Washington in 1776, a plot hatched by a few members of his most trusted security team, Washington's lifeguards, which very nearly succeeded. The book is titled The First Conspiracy. It's just arriving in the bookstores now, and it's a page-turner, folks. It's a true historic thriller, all based upon recently discovered information by two of history's greatest detectives, Brad Meltzer and Josh Mintz. And we have them with us today to share how they found out about this conspiracy. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? We're good. Good to hear your voice. Doing well. Thank you so much. Starting with Brad, can you give us a little bit about your background, books, movies, TV, and then Josh, if you'll introduce yourself and the work you've done together, especially you're producing Lost History, which is one of my favorite television shows. And then we'll begin with some questions. Well, I appreciate that very much. Uh, my name is Brad Meltzer. I write thrillers for a living and mysteries for a living. So usually I'm talking to my imaginary friends and uh, have done books from the Book of Fate to the Inner Circle to the most recent ones called The Escape Artist, which was uh, a thriller set in modern day, but also with a lot of research into the life of Harry Houdini. And um, when I was researching one of my books... Uh, years ago, I started writing about Freemasons and the secret codes that Thomas Jefferson used uh, when he was president, and that led the History Channel to giving me a TV show that was called Decoded, and then another one that was called Lost History, and uh, along the way, I, I've done everything from kids' books, the I Am series, I Am Amelia Earhart and I Am Abraham Lincoln, to um, books on Decoded, to uh, inspirational books, Heroes for My Son and Heroes for My Daughter, and uh, also doing comic books from Superman and Batman to the Justice League. And that leads me today, after we did uh, Lost History, I got to work with my friend Josh Mensch, who I'll introduce him and let him tell you a little bit more about himself. Great. So, yeah, my name is Josh Mensch, and my history is mostly in um, documentary and documentary television. But a lot of the work that I've done has been about American history. I uh, work for the uh, PBS show History Detectives, which was on the air for a long time, and I've done a lot of work for the History Channel. I recently did a big uh, history of superheroes, kind of a culture, cultural history of superheroes and how they relate to American history, and a lot of other programs too, but one of the highlights was definitely working with Brad here on a show called Lost History that we did together, and we immediately saw that we shared a, a love of American history and a passion for it, and that's kind of where we bonded. And in some ways, that led us uh, to where we are here and, and having worked together on this book. Could one of you, uh, I'll let you volunteer, to uh, set our listeners up with the story here. Yeah, and, and maybe I can kill two birds with one stone here. But uh, let, okay. let's start with just the, the intro of it is I was researching um, this for almost a decade. I found out about it almost a decade ago, and we can talk about how after. But let's just set, let's set the, the stage and this is a secret plot, as you said, to kill George Washington. And when George Washington found out about it, he gathered together those responsible, took one of the members of the people who were responsible, built a gallows, 
and hung him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, said, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. That's obviously me paraphrasing a little bit, but you, you get the idea. Um, yeah, I think he said, I'll be on ye old money one day is what the quote was. Uh, but we just love the story. And it was an incredible moment um, because the question, of course, becomes, why does no one know about this? How do you not know 20,000 people watching a, a, a hanging, watching execution, and somehow it's missing from most history books? I had never heard of it. You know, Josh had never heard of it when we first you know, started looking into it. And um, it became this amazing curiosity for us. And what the reason, you, you know, we can talk about why we think they didn't hear about it. But just to give you the context for it, it all, the hanging happened on June 28, 1776. Guess what was happening right around then, right? The first draft of the Declaration of Independence is coming in. We're, you know, barely a week away from it being signed. The British are truly, literally coming. Um, and the first battles are, the big battles are, are getting ready to be fought. And in the midst of this, 20,000 people watch this execution in this plot to kill George Washington. Some say it was to kidnap him. Some say it was to kill him. Either way, the result's the same. But it led us to this new book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. That, it's absolutely incredible. In order to put all the facts together, and this, and this is the kind of history that is basically hidden from view, how long did it take both of you to research this, and when did you know you, you would be able to complete it, that you, that you had what you needed? Yeah, let me start, and I think Josh can take it away from here. Um, what happened was, is as I mentioned, I, I found it almost a decade ago, and I found it in the place where all good facts are found, which is in the footnotes. I forget even what I was reading, but I saw it in a footnote, and I remember thinking, a plot to kill George Washington? Is this real? Is this fake? Is this internet nonsense? What is this? And I couldn't shake it. I actually used it in one of my thrillers. You'll see it on a single page in, the, in a book called The President's Shadow that I did a number of years ago. I mentioned it for a paragraph. And that's really how it was. In any good, you know, It's not like we uncovered something that no one had ever seen before. If you look at any good Washington book about George Washington's life, you'll see a footnote about it or maybe a paragraph, maybe a sentence. You'll see, you know, if you're lucky, a page. Um, and, but I'd never seen, there's no modern book written on it. And I, and I just was like, it, what is it? What's the story here? I took it to, uh, to Joseph Ellis, a famous, of course, Pulitzer Prize winning historian who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said to him, do you know this story, the plot to kill Washington? And he said, yeah, I've heard the story. I don't know much about it. And I said, well, I'm thinking of maybe look, doing a book on it. What would you say? And he said, and, and I'll never forget the conversation. Uh, I was taking furious notes as he was talking. And he said to me, you know, you can find out so much about George Washington's life. You can find out the exact number of slaves he owned. All the details are there. He said, but this is a story about his spies. And you'll never, no matter how hard you research, be able to find all his spies. <laughs> by, he said, by its nature, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. And I knew that, you know, he said, you got to try, you know, at the very least, you'll get an adventure out of it. If, you know, maybe you'll get a book out of it. And um, I called up Josh and I said, I think we can do this. I, you know, I'd love to write a book. What do you think? And he, I remember him saying, let me look into it. I'm going to look into it, too. And I'll let Josh take away from there um, where the start came and, and uh, then we can go on. I, too, was quite surprised that I had never heard of this very dramatic event. You know, I thought I knew the period pretty well. I thought I knew George Washington, you know, pretty well. 
but had never really heard this story and uh, took some time to just dig into it and see what I could find. And what's confusing about it initially is that there's a lot of kind of swirling misinformation around kind of rumors and legends, you know, when, when you try to learn about it. But after a while, uh, the pieces did really start to come together. And pretty quickly, it, it felt like no matter what, no matter what we learned, there was enough to go to go on here to really dig deep and try to tell this story and just find whatever we could find. Because there was no question that some very dramatic events had happened. Certainly this hanging of, uh, you know, not just anyone, but one of George Washington's own bodyguards was hanged in front of the entire army in New York days before the British, uh, you know, arrived for the first major battle of the Revolutionary War. Clearly something major had happened. And there was also a very significant investigation, uh, and we can get into details later, but uh, it was undertaken by a body of the New York Congress at the time, the New York Provincial Congress, as it was called, uh, which was the you know, sort of the rebel congressional body that was controlling New York Colony at the time. And they kept documentation of a very robust investigation in which they interrogated people, they imprisoned people, they um, did a lot of work and clearly took, were taking this plot very, very, very seriously. Uh, and that right there just told us that there was enough to go on and that we could tell a really riveting story almost, you know, no matter if we could find out exactly where it led or not. We just knew that there was something really exciting here. And the other thing I'll say is I knew when Josh said that New York Provincial Congress, my eyes rolled in the back of my head and I thought, well, that's going to be boring. But when he told me that the secret committee was actually called the Committee on Conspiracies, that's when we started going, wait a minute, <laughs> what's that? And, you know, suddenly you find out there's a secret committee on conspiracies that's looking into people who are plotting against this new great nation of ours. Um, and that's when you know the fun, you know, is really going to take place. Because, you know, you can, you can find some stories, and as, as Josh said, it's so easy to find myths and legends. We love them in our country, right? That's what the podcast is <laughs> about. Um, we all love our legends and myths. But it was when we were able to find... Uh, the actual transcripts from these secret trials, from these things that, you know, and it's not mm. like, the amazing part is it's not like, you know, I think Josh and I together, we imagine ourselves these modern day Indiana Jones and like we crawl on our hands and knees and we <laughs> get the Holy Grail and then we bring it back for all to see. And my gosh, we just barely, you know, I said, throw me the idol, I'll throw you the whip. And it was all, made it, you know, <laughs> and it all happened. And then, but the reality is it's all there. It's, it's there. Like, if you go to the New York archives, if you go to the National Archives, if you go to there, you know, they have an incredible resource. So much is digitized today. You can find it from your house. Yeah. You don't have to throw the idol and throw the whip. The problem is no one wants to read it. Yeah. No one wants to take the time and go through the old documents and actually read them. And when you read them, there it is. And I remember Josh sending me the files and saying, I got this today. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, who do we have to murder to get this? And he was like, no, no, it was right there in the New York uh, archives. And, and it's just incredible um, because they were all, you know, again, because it was the original, you know, provincial Congress, the records weren't kept. And, you know, that's where they kept them. It was it was it was in those New York records. So it's it's really um, you know, don't, don't let me stop playing the Indiana Jones theme, but it really was this amazing adventure because you're going on in, in, in a part of American history we've never seen, or at least I hadn't seen before. Now, in, in Washington's personal guard, are there any names in there that we would recognize? Um, you'll like certainly Talmadge, recognize like Thomas Talmadge? Hickey, right? Yeah, well, of course. Well, let's talk about, yeah, let's go from, from high to low and back and forth. Um, you'll recognize who was murdered as Thomas Hickey, and it's known... 
um, the Hickey affair to those who are really into the into you know the kind of obscure American history. That's uh, that's obviously the the you know the the big moment uh, and in terms of who gets hanged. And you'll certainly you know there's Benjamin Talmud. We do a little bit of culpering stuff. I'm someone, and it's worth mentioning. I got a call a number of years ago from the Department of Homeland Security, and they asked me to come in and brainstorm real ways a terrorist could attack the United States. And my first thought was, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody thinks, <laughs> right? Like, you think America's crazy right now, just wait. Um, but I was honored to go do it. It was called the Red Cell Program. They would take thriller novelists like myself, pair me with a Secret Service agent and a chemist, and they would give us a target. And It was an amazing responsibility. That's and I loved doing it. But what I was struck by is why me? Why me of all people? They could pick anyone they want. And I traced it back through history to a man named George Washington. And it was, you know, almost 15 years ago I found this out. Um, is that we all know now George Washington had his own secret spy ring made up of regular ordinary citizens. And why? Because he knew that everyone knows his generals. Everyone knows his big military advisors. But he knew no one looks twice at an ordinary person. And I love that idea. I said to my friend in Homeland Security, wouldn't it be cool if you found out that George Washington's spy ring, the culpa ring, still existed to this very day? And he said to me, what makes you think it doesn't? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, you know, right there I got caught up. I started writing this book called The Inner Circle, which, you know, was a fictional book about the culpa ring still existing today. And that made me fall in love, a long-winded way of saying with Benjamin Talmadge, um, uh, who, of course, led the culpa ring and, um, you know, all the people that were involved with it. And Josh knows that I kept bothering him over and over to bring the culprit into the into the first conspiracy, which we of course do. Um, so you see bits and pieces of that, um, but you'll see every you know the the cast is um, I think even better than Benjamin Talmadge in this one is is the role of John Jay. I think is the one yeah. that's going to really impress people. It's an incredible detail. Uh, people of course know uh, that John Jay was uh, our first Supreme Court justice. What they don't realize is he was one of the most amazing investigators during the Revolutionary War. And really, you'll see in the book, Streamline, and I'll let Josh talk about this, how uh, really you saw the, the counterintelligence uh, agencies that we have today were all, you know, we like to think of the OSS as the precursor to the CIA. But really, all of these things came from this moment in time with John Jay and what the Committee on Conspiracies was building with Livingston and with Governor Morris, all of them together were building something incredible. You're yeah, up, so, Josh. Yeah, so just to build on that, um, you know, one of the things that was great about learning this story is it's, it's very easy to think of the Revolutionary War and just even if you know something about it, to remember it as, as it was in, in, the his, in high school history class where you had, you know, the colonists here and then the bad British came across the ocean and we fought a war with the British. But what isn't talked about as much or what you don't always learn in history class is that there were many, many, many people within the colonies who were actually on the British side. There were many colonists who were on the British side, the loyalists. And within the loyalists, you find a lot of scheming and a lot of uh, attempts to sabotage the revolution and to sabotage the Continental Army. Snakes in the garden. Exactly. Snakes in the garden. And uh, and that's a really fascinating part of the, especially the early war. And that's where a lot of the danger lie and, and lay for George Washington. And so one of the problems he faced as he was building an army and as the war was beginning was how to deal with all of these plots and schemes, not just coming from the British and British spies, but from within the colonies. 
And when he came down to New York, uh, the problem just was terrible because New York had a lot of loyalists and a lot of Tories who, uh, you know, were very much against George Washington and very much against the rebellion. And they just didn't know how to handle it. Uh, they were a military army and they weren't equipped to do intelligence work. They weren't equipped at that point to, uh, to handle all these kind of domestic plots and these treasonous plots. And so uh, George Washington enlisted the help, as I said, of the New York Provincial Congress and said, I need help with this. And we need to come up with a plan to counter all of these people who are plotting against us, both on the British side, but also from within the colonies. And um, so working with the Congress, they formed this, uh, as Brad said, what would become called the Committee on Conspiracies. Uh, at first, they just called it the Secret Committee, and then they called it the Secret Committee on Intestine Enemies, which was kind of awkward. And then they finally came up with a very cool-sounding Committee on Conspiracies. And it was basically uh, the precursor of an, in of an intelligence organization. Uh, and their job was to, in top secret, try to uh, uncover and investigate uh, all the sort of subterfuge and, and clandestine plots that were were being hatched against George Washington and against the Continental Army. And, and they were the group that actually uncovered this plot that we, we talk about that was a plot to potentially kill George Washington and that involved members of his own bodyguards who were in on it. And one of the things that was, you know, what I think is so important to point out is, you know, we talked about America being in love with our legends and myths, right? And the ones we love most are our own. And as Josh said so eloquently, right, is you learn in, in, in your history classes, and, and I know that audiences listen to this is way beyond that, but it's worth, you know, repeating, um, is we all of us were taught that certain story, that myth, right, is, is we were the good guys and they were the bad guys, and then we all came together and we fought this British military, the greatest fighting force that ever existed. We didn't have guns. We didn't have gunpowder. We barely had shoes. But, man, we just held hands and wished for rainbows, and we overcame. Yeah. And it's a wonderful story, a spectacular story, but that doesn't mean it's the true story. And I think, you know, especially at this time where our country is so divided, whatever your politics are, you know, you, whatever side you disagree with, you hate the other side. Um, in many odd ways, we were so divided back then, too. We weren't some unified force just immediately fighting against the British. I mean, every regiment... You know, the, the Massachusetts regiment hated the Connecticut one, hated the Virginia one. They wore different uniforms. There's this great moment in the book that I love, which is uh, right as the Virginians come into Harvard Yard, the Marbleheads and Massachusetts guys are looking at them with their frilly uniforms and, you know, start mouthing off. And they start fist fighting, breaks out in Harvard Yard. And George Washington swoops in on his horse and grabs two of the big guys and starts shaking them, throttling them. Like, stop fighting. We're on the same team. And I just love that pointing out that, you know, it didn't all happen overnight. We all came together. We were in many ways still so divided. But it takes a really amazing leader to overcome those divisions. You need someone who will forcibly pull you together rather than push you apart. And I think, you know, when you read the first conspiracy, one of the things that's so important and that will come through is not just it's amazing to see a plot against George Washington. That's a fun fact. But what I think is so important is to see and reveal his character and see the amazing leader that he was and, and the one that we're still starving for so much today. I think you're so right. And I, and I do believe that's one of American history's greatest lessons uh, is the Revolutionary War and the fact that uh, we were divided uh, as a country. You didn't know if your neighbor uh, 
was a Tory, was a Tory sympathizer or not. You couldn't talk to anybody. You weren't sure who you were talking to. Uh, even with, I remember with Ben Franklin, his son William was the governor of New Jersey, and William was a total Tory. Um, yeah, and Ben Franklin wrote him off. We actually deal with a little bit yeah, in the book. And, and William, William spent uh, most of the Revolutionary War in a prison in Connecticut because the, the rebels in Connecticut wouldn't stand for him remaining as governor, so they carried him up there. Yeah, right? no, we and, love that story. Go ahead, Josh. Sorry. And, and Ben Franklin uh, you know, could have intervened and, uh, and gotten his, his son out, but he chose not to. Because, uh, you know, they were divided politically. Yeah. And, and, you know, you look back then, you don't even think about it. But, you know, just again, the logic of it is you couldn't it's not like you could tell them apart. Everyone had a British accent, you know, I mean, arguably Washington did, too. That just was the way people spoke. So it wasn't like, as you said, you know, you didn't know who was on your side or who wasn't. And and the sad reality was is on the days when it looked like the British were going to win, people switched to the British side. We like <laughs> everyone likes to be a winner. And we looked on the days when. When, you know, the Patriots look like they were going to win, people were like, well, I'll go with it. No one wants to lose. You know, we're still, we, we are we are forever, sadly, a country of, of great fighters. We've learned how to fight really well, but we're also a country of great opportunists. Um, yeah. And when victory presents itself, you, you can watch, you know, as the wind sways, you can see what side people go to. And it makes for a really impossible environment to investigate who's on your side and who's plotting against you. It really does. I, I don't think it was until Saratoga that, uh, that most of the, that many of the the common people started to say, you know, I think we have a chance in this. Let's back Washington. That yeah, was- and one of my yeah one of my favorite moments in the book is, and I'll go even a little earlier than that because I think Saratoga, of course, is you know, listen, it's the magical moment. They make the paintings there for a reason. Um, but I also think one of my favorite moments of the book uh, is early on we do the Battle of Brooklyn. Mm. And you see this moment where, uh, you know, here's, you know, again, we like to think, oh, it all went well and we just fought together and we got our butts kicked, right? We're pinned against the East River. We're pinned down in the middle of the night. And at that moment in time, we're out generaled. You know, George Washington is just not experienced as the British military leaders are. Mm -hmm. Um, We get out fought. um, And at that moment, George Washington do what anyone in their right mind would do is say, you know what? We lost. I'm going to take as many as we can with us. We're going out in a blaze of glory. And instead, George Washington does the best thing George Washington always does, which is he adapts. And in that moment, he instead of you know going out in the blaze of glory or beating his chest and trying to you know show what a macho guy he is, he plans a daring escape. And in the middle of the night, he brings all these boats and pontoons and all you know to come in the middle of the night to take his men over the East River to escape. But what the men see is that. George Washington won't get on any of the boats until all of his men are on there first, even the lower guys, not just the big top you know, military leaders. And they're seeing, oh, my gosh, this guy is risking his life and putting his life over our lives. And to me, that's one of the first great moments where the military gets to see what a leader really is. We all know there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. Put on the TV any night of the week, watch whatever you want, but you can see the difference between a politician and a leader, whatever your politics are, whoever you're rooting for. And to me, I love that we get to kind of feature those moments because, you know, in those moments where George Washington is, I don't care how big or strong you are, when your own men turn on you, you got to be worried, especially when it's your own bodyguards, the best of the best of you. I mean, you know, and it's worth talking about George Washington had these bodyguards he asked for all of his top uh, regiments, he asked every regiment to give him four guys. Give me four best guys. He wanted what he called, they were called drilled men. And the drilled men were, you know, again, the best. Give me your best. 
And he took all those men, took about 50 or so, plus or minus, um, and created his own personal bodyguard. As Josh said, they called him his personal bodyguard. They called they call him, you know, uh, the general's guard. They had all these great names. Eventually, the, the name really became the lifeguards. And we all think of lifeguards as Baywatch and David Hasselhoff. But the original lifeguards were in charge of not just guarding, guarding uh, George Washington's important papers and not just money back then, uh, you know, but they were in charge of truly guarding George Washington's life, the lifeguards. And this were, these were the closest men to him. These were his personal secret service. This was it. And it was these men who turned on him. And I don't care, again, how big or strong you are. That moment hurts. How you know? much are you willing to give up uh, to let us know who the original mole was and how many of those guys did turn on him? I, I'll, I'll tell you this. It ain't just one. And it ain't just two. And it ain't even just three. And you'll see the names. I think I don't want to I don't want to ruin the book because the fun of the first conspiracy <laughs> is, of course, you know, is to watch how they figured out. But what I love is you get to see not only how the Committee on Conspiracies figures it out, but you get to see it's an amazing moment because it shows you in the moment where you see how they're caught, you see just how easily it could have gone the other way. We had no idea how close we were to losing George Washington for this all to take place but for a couple of guys sitting in a jail cell one night. And I'll leave it at that. But it's an incredibly amazing moment because what you have to do in that moment is consider what happens if we lose George Washington, right? And this isn't late in the war. This isn't year six, right? This isn't toward the end. This is 1776. It's a key moment. Um, and so that just becomes an incredible part of the first conspiracy. I've got a question for Josh. Josh, I know you've spent, uh, you probably can't count the number of days that you have spent in, in researching the facts for this book and, and writing this book. And I know that you see a lot of things from the perspective of a film producer. And I'm wondering how you would begin this movie. And I, I would not be surprised to see this become a movie. I'm wondering what your first scene would be. <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, uh, well, first of all, you're right that I cannot count the number of days uh, spent uh, uh, delving into to the research and, and, and learning the facts of this story. Uh, but of course, that's the most fun part of it is, is the learning. You know, as for what scene to open with, I mean, you know, the scene we open with in the book uh, could be a, a fun one. It might also be fun to open with, you know, with some of the conspirators. And uh, we talked about uh, some of the uh, you know, the, the lifeguards who were in on this plot. But there were other folks who were in on this plot, too. And, and in the book, there's this whole cast of characters. It was this kind of underbelly of New York City. And, of course, they always met in the taverns. And the taverns were kind of these central meeting places for the, the underground uh, loyalists who were secretly plotting against, uh, against the patriots. And I think it could also be really fun to maybe start with, with, some, of the, with some of the enemies who were... Uh, who were in some dark, uh, dank tavern, drinking rum and plotting against uh, George Washington and uh, figuring out how they could help, uh, help the British win the war. For the sake of our listeners, explain how the book opens. What scene does the book open with? Well, the book opens with, uh, you know, a, a moment when George Washington has just arrived in New York City and is going to his night retreat. And when George Washington was in New York, when he was staying in New York, he had a central office that was downtown. And then uh, he also had his night lodgings, which were in the woods, which was the equivalent of Soho, uh, but at the time was woods. 
we have him sort of arriving at this night location surrounded by his lifeguards, and he has no idea that people around him are actually plotting against him. And it's uh, on the eve of, uh, of the British coming, and George Washington is in a very vulnerable position, and he doesn't know how dangerous his position really is because some of the people he thinks he can trust and who are closest to him are actually plotting against him. Drama from the get-go. Good stuff. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I should say, I should say, you know, if, for anyone who's listening, if you do want to read Chapter 1, we put it free on the website. If you go to bradmeltzer.com and click on the first conspiracy, Chapter 1's right there. It's worth reading. It'll, you know, if, we, if you don't like Chapter 1, you know, I don't know what we got for you, but it's a, it's a killer. <laughs> Are there any themes that we haven't touched on you guys would like to talk about? You know, one thing that's just so great about this story and that, and that, I think made it so much fun for us to work on was that in addition to telling this incredible conspiracy story of, of this secret plot against George Washington, it's just a great excuse to tell really the story of the first year of the war. And, uh, and we get to follow George Washington from the moment he takes command of the Continental Army uh, through uh, Boston and the early siege of Boston, and then his move down to New York, culminating in both the Battle of New York and the Declaration of Independence. And the plot is happening the whole time. It's, it's, it's being hatched by his enemies, and we learn about his enemies as well. But it's also just a really fun journey through that incredible first year of the war and, and really seeing it from George Washington's point of view and realizing how incredibly scary this situation was and how, um, how against the odds this war was. And when he first took charge of this army, None of them were experienced. As Brad said, none of them had shoes even. Most of the soldiers didn't have shoes. They didn't have enough weapons. They didn't have enough food. And they were facing the greatest military force in the history of the world. And we really try to capture and take you there and convey what that was like and how high the stakes were and the fact that all of them could end up being hanged as traitors at the end of it and that this war could have ended in absolute disaster for the colonies. And a lot of people thought it would at the time. So... Uh, it's really just an incredible journey. Uh, and, and I'll say the details, uh, you know, are so incredible. You know, the one benefit we have of having Josh as someone who who does documentaries is that he's a stickler for details as much as I am. And so I remember there was one point where we, he wanted to show just exactly how much prostitution there was and how much drinking there was in New York at the time. And he figured out, like, you know, based on the population of New York, this percentage were prostitutes and even got to, like, you know, if you're drinking rum back then, if you distilled the rum, it was this kind of proof as opposed to now where it's watered down. And to just show really how drunk and messed up New York was yeah. in 1776. Um, and if you thought New York was crazy now, which, of course, it is, uh, <laughs> I just love that, you know, you get every, all the details are, you know, you, you can almost smell the old city. It's wonderful. Yeah, and just, just uh, the, the average adult male at that time drank four to five shots of rum a day. Um, and that did, doesn't include beer, and it doesn't include wine, and it doesn't include some other beverages. So that just gives you a, a flavor for what New York City was like at that time. And, and accounts for all those bad teeth. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There were lots of bad choices being made. It's, it's, right. awfully, it's <laughs> awfully hard to find <laughs> extras. Speaking. It's hard to find That's extras right. for that time period, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, what I'd like you guys to do is is talk about some of your favorite uh, past projects in terms of uh, television-style documentaries, that type of thing. I know you touched on it at the beginning, Brad, 
But if each of yeah. you could maybe mention a couple of projects that you've done, uh, I know our, our listeners would love to hear it. Sure. Um, well, my, my first foray being in front of the camera was an, was an odd one because it came with our own TV show. And I can tell you that, you know, for those listening here, there you've heard many amazing stories on this podcast. Um, when you want the really truly crazy story, I will say very few people get crazier email than me. Um, so, you know, if you want to, if, if you have a crazy story to tell, you know, you either send it to Jesse Ventura, or you send it to me and, and, you know, it, and God bless them. Like we used to do our own thing. But I remember one day getting an, an email that showed up it was a phone call that came from, uh, the family of John Wilkes Booth, who of course famously shot Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you read any textbook you know any history book will tell you that 12 days after abraham lincoln was shot they shot and killed john wilkes booth as well and that was the end of the story and the family of john wilkes booth reached out through their lawyer a friend of mine uh who said to me hey brad i got the family of john wilkes booth that i'm representing here and they want to tell you the story their story is that john wilkes booth never actually died 12 days after he shot abraham lincoln he actually got away they got the wrong guy he escaped he changed his name and they have the proof you want to hear their story Yes, I want to hear that story, right? You listen to that story. And we did that episode on Decoded. We did the, uh, the Lincoln assassination. Um, and it's, you know, and I love that we get to have those adventures. And, I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Josh and my, I think, our greatest adventure. I don't know if we can ever top it. Um, we're certainly trying with this book because I do feel like the first conspiracy is like an episode of Decoded and Lost History, but in book form. That's all it really is. But one of the ones that we met on, which I feel like we have to talk about, is on Lost History, we went searching for lost historical artifacts. And I went to the History Channel and I said, I want to do a show where I get to tell the story of these lost artifacts and we'll ask America for their help and to bring them back. And on the very first episode, we talked about the story of the 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero. We all know the famous photograph on 9-11, and what very few people knew was that that flag went missing. 24 hours later, it was gone. And what we couldn't say, Josh and I could not say at the time, but four days after the first episode of Lost History aired, uh, we got a phone call, and it was a man who it, he had walked into a fire station in Everett, Washington, in Washington State of all places. They had called us and said that this man walked in. He said he saw the show Lost History on the air four days ago, and he needed to return the flag. He had the flag, and this was it. And we spent the better part of a year working to authenticate it. Uh, we had the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit working with us, um, and it was one of the most incre incredible things because it ended with us unveiling the flag uh, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 Museum, where it is currently still on display uh, and I highly encourage anyone listening. It's not a museum that's depressing. It's one that's inspiring. You see that heroes still exist in this world. And it was thanks to the work of Josh and his team and everyone on Lost History that telling that story so beautifully and so eloquently that we actually got to have it come back. And so to be, you know, even even just to be able to help unveil that in the museum, it was like to play a tiny role in that story. And its return was one of the most humbling moments of, of my life. That's a great story. I know you were involved in a couple of uh, a couple of good uh, finds or gems like that. What, what was another one that you had? That uh, Josh, you want me to talk about Josh? You want to talk about the Hitler diary? We can talk about as well. Um, and we even what we even talked about, although we can't take credit for it coming back. Uh, Dorothy's red ruby slippers. In fact, that was how I pitched when I first pitched the idea of lost <laughs> history to the History Channel. The very first item on my list was Dorothy's red ruby slippers that had gone missing. 
Um, and thankfully, you know, I, again, we can take no credit for it, but the story was out there. We certainly added, I hope, something to people hearing about it. But eventually this past year, it did. someone did turn them in. They did come back, which was amazing as they found them and brought them back. I won't top that other than to say that, uh, you know, any fans of American history should look up uh, Lost History, the show that Brad and I did together. And the, the, the Ground Zero flag story was our in our first episode, episode one. But every episode has great stories uh, telling about these amazing artifacts from American history that for one reason or another were lost or stolen. And it's just a great excuse to learn the story of the artifact. So we go we cover just about every era of American history and tell really great, uh, fascinating stories along the way. So uh, I encourage any any history buffs and just people, anyone interested in good television or American history to, to watch that show. Well, thank you. I know I've seen a number of those episodes, and that's an excellent show. I highly, I highly recommend it to our listeners. Would you guys ever consider doing that show, uh, doing more episodes? But I will say, for those who love Lost History, and, and all kidding aside, and, um, and who love Decoded, go on social media, tag History. There, It's not at History Channel, it's just at History. Um, and tell them you want whichever show you want back. That's how you get it back. Um, but we talk to them all the time. I was actually just talking to them a couple weeks ago. Um, we obviously love working with them. They were incredible partners. Thank you very much, you guys, for being with us for this show. I know our listeners can't wait to get hold of your book. Could you let them know when the book comes out and where they can get it? Absolutely. The book is out January 8th at all bookstores, so it should be available now. And uh, you can also go to bradmeltzer.com or just put in the first conspiracy into good old Google, and it'll tell you where to go. Now, if they want to send you crazy questions, where do they send them? Yeah, go to bradmeltzer.com, hit the email us button, and have at it. We love uh, you know, the stories that are out there. I know, like as anything else, people will bring me the craziest things from the Holy Grail, which someone brought me at a book signing to anything else. But I also know that there are some really amazing stories out there, and we always get them from uh, especially good hot tips from people who, who really were there. So please let us know. Uh, Brad Meltzer and Josh Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate it. And I wish you guys both the best of luck going forward with all your projects. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys.